Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We're In Social Work. Hi from the University at Buffalo. As recently cited in the Huffington Post, if you are looking to improve your happiness, you might want to consider moving to our fair city. We place sixth out of the top 10 U.S. cities for the highest quality of life. We already knew that. We're just surprised we weren't higher. I'm Peter Sabota. In this episode, our guest doctors Toba Kirsten and Judith McCoyd discuss their latest work re-examining interviews conducted in 1976 with the early pioneers of health-related social work. They compare those with themes they identified from current social workers in the healthcare field. They learned that then, as now, social workers in the healthcare field respond to the needs of their clients, the medical establishment, and all others affected by public health issues. Current responses to needs include those created by wars, new and underserved populations, technological advances, public health crises, wealth disparity, and globalization. Doctors Kirsten and McCoyd found that current social workers continue to respond in alignment with our core ethical values of social justice, human rights, advocacy, and social action. Our guests provide a strong reminder that from our earliest days, the distinctive way that social workers respond to needs serves as an example of how our core values and skills provide a unique voice and identity for our profession. Toba Kirsten, DSW, PhD, is professor in the Graduate School of Social Work and Social Research and Mary Hale Chase Professor Emeritus in Social Sciences at Bryn Mawr College. Her research is in two areas, broadly defined social work practice and depictions of epilepsy in mass media. Professor Kirsten was recently named a Fulbright Specialist. Judith McCoyd is Associate Professor at Rutgers University School of Social Work. Her scholarly work centers around perinatal decision-making, technology and healthcare, societal aspects of bereavement, and social work education. Her research agenda involves exploration of the ways advancing technologies impact the experience of childbearing and bereavement. Our guests were interviewed in July of 2014 by our own Dr. Laura Lewis, Director of Field Education here at the UB School of Social Work. So good morning. I have Toba Kirsten and Judith McCoyd with me today. Welcome, ladies. Hello. Thank you. And there's a fascinating story about the early history of social work in the U.S. that I hadn't been aware of that I think our listeners are going to find fascinating, too. So, Toba and Judy, I'm very interested in learning about how you came to study history as a social worker. Okay, well, I'm Toba Kirsten. Well, we have to start with one older social worker <laughs> because the interviews that formed the sort of kernel of what we did were actually done by me as the basis of my sociology dissertation, which was on the history of medical social work from a sociological perspective. And I found after I spent a lot of time reading every article that I could find that had ever been written by or about medical social workers or health social workers, hospital social workers, as they were first called, 
that I really needed to speak to the women, as many women as I could find. And so I interviewed or sent a short questionnaire to every social work professional in the medical field who was a kind of a second generation social worker in healthcare. All of these women had achieved some prominence in the field, so they had important positions either as the heads of departments or working for the federal government or state governments, and I found interviewing them to be tremendously exciting. The most famous was Harriet Bartlett, whom I assume, I don't know if the students of today have heard of, but I hope they have, but also many women who did very important, very practical work, perhaps wrote less, but did very important work in shaping the field. And there's a legacy here of these women that perhaps people have not talked about or are not familiar with. Right. And part of what intrigued me and brought me to this work, and this is Judy speaking, I was a hospital social worker for many years and then came back for doctoral work, primarily here to Bryn Mawr because of Toba's first, well, I guess it was your second edition of the Social Work and Health Studies book. And she talked about the importance of context and the work in healthcare settings. And that I was already doing that work and had heard of, spent some time reading some of those things about Ida Cannon. And so when I heard that she had all these interviews, I was totally intrigued. We'd worked together for at least five, maybe eight years before I finally had the space in my life and my doctoral studies under my belt and said, I'd love to read those interviews. And that was what brought the genesis of that together with putting together the 2010 Social Work and Health Settings book kind of brought the genesis of this article. I see. And so partly your own experience and your own intrigue is what led you, Judy, to join up with Toba to reanalyze the data from that earlier study? Right. I don't know if you know that Judy actually did her doctorate here, and she did her doctorate with me. So, yeah, whoever was the chair of my doctoral committee, I had, uh, you know, certainly read practically everything she'd written at that point. Sure. And Judy, can I ask you, did some of the information about those early pioneers resonate with you as a hospital social worker coming back to school to get your doctorate in social work? Absolutely, although I have to say I didn't read the interviews in the raw form until after I'd completed my doctoral work. But before I started my doctoral work, or maybe that first year, I'd read both of Toby's dissertation, and so I had a sense of what she had written in the medical social work paradox, and that had all resonated, plus there were many people who were quoted in her dissertation who I had heard of, too. I'd done my master's in New York, and so even though many of the people she interviewed were either in Baltimore or Boston, nevertheless, I'd heard of many of those names, and so... They really were the foremothers in the field, and people like Macy Rappaport and Justine Barbara. Barbara. (laughs) Yeah, these, these were names I'd seen a lot. Sure. It feels a little bit like discovering buried treasure. How exciting it must have been. And one of the things that I believe our listeners will really appreciate is some of the lessons and nuggets of wisdom that you found that have resonance even still today. And so let me back up a little, though, and ask you what main themes emerged from the data, Judy and Toba. Go ahead, Toba. 
Well, the title is sort of sums it up in response to need, which means that that's the way social workers shape the work. They didn't think about, and we have quotes in the article that talk about this too, from a long time ago, but they didn't think about, well, what will really further the profession? What will make sure that, you know, it's a very exclusive group that no one can join? <laughs> they just thought about, what do people need and how can we get to these people and how can we get, often get permission to work with these people? So that was true for the Great Depression when they had been told they could only work with the poorest of people in hospitals, and they said, no, all these middle-class people are now in terrible quandaries themselves. It was always true with big public health problems like syphilis and polio, where they saw the need, stepped in. They often defined what they were doing, really, after they jumped in. <laughs> There's some wonderful stories, some of which are in this article, that women talked about. A lot of these women got their start in the American Red Cross. It was a way to go overseas. It was very exciting for them. And they would just be assigned, one of the women talks about going to funerals and not being able to listen to taps for years after that because they needed, they said, well, you're a woman, we need a woman at a funeral, so get your hat and show up. Right, and just to build on that, that was, I was just looking at the article, it was Mary Kay Taylor, and yeah. that was one of the first of the interviews that I read when I went back to look at the data, and she writes about not only going, writing to all of the families of these deceased soldiers, but then attending the funerals, and she has this incredibly funny story about bringing up the tail end of a funeral procession and this cow joining her, <laughs> and that she was so afraid of cows, but she learned to collaborate with a cow by the end of the funeral procession. So I thought, you know, that the adaptability, I think that wasn't a theme that we drew out as a single theme, but it was one we saw throughout the data, that social workers just across the board, while we respond to wars and public health issues and new technologies and all these other themes that are identified in the article, the thing that goes across and cuts through is the adaptability and commitment of these historic social workers as well as current ones. I think so. Also, this is Toba now. Another one of the things we talk about is the needs of organizations which keep changing and which sometimes are not so good at, at understanding what it is that we have to offer. And so they and we and everybody in between this generation that was two generations older than I and now have to be able to express exactly what they do with great clarity so that everyone can understand what they do. Sure. I think that when I referred to these women earlier as pioneers, you know, I was speaking rather metaphorically, but really quite literally they charted new territory here and discovered new ground with the focus not being on that necessarily, but like you said earlier, really concerned about what people needed. They were also remarkably brave. Macy Rappaport, who happened to have been my boss at the Baltimore City Hospitals for six years, and if I have a social work mentor, it would still be Macy. There's an example also in the article about the doctor saying, this person needs a such and such, and she would say, oh, no, you tell me about the person, and I will meet the person, and I will tell you what the person needs, and I will make sure that that person gets the service that she, he or she needs. And that was exactly how she managed 
the physicians and the nurses and just moved forward. The patient's interests really mattered too. And she was determined to hear from them before making a decision about what was in their best interest. Right. And I think, this is Judy now, I think that one of the things that I was taken by in Maisie Ravapour's interview was that not only the story that Toba just told, but the fact that she was really clearly a professional. She was no handmaiden to the doctors, which is sort of what some of the early medical social work material sort of looked like we were handmaidens. And as we know, we are professionals with a good perspective and training and value set of our own. And that value set, I think, was one of the other themes that sort of cross-cuts across, knowing that not just do we respond to need and are we committed, but we value the autonomy and self-determination of the patients and we do want to hear their stories. We're not going to just go running for the homemaker because the doctor says <laughs> we want a homemaker. I think I'd love to add, too, another Maisie Rappaport. I loved her interview. She worked with prostitutes in Baltimore, I guess, in, so you were interviewing them in the 30s. Okay, so she, this was in the 30s. Yeah. And she was talking about how out in the West, they were trying to do mental health work with prostitutes, trying to figure out, you know, what were the psychoanalytic reasons that they were prostituting. And Maisie says overtly, they needed money to raise their children. And it's that kind of let's get down to grassroots here and look at the social structural problems that are going on that just had me absolutely taken by these interviews that Toba had done with these pioneers. Yes. It's very inspirational from my perspective, the courage and the bravery, like you said earlier. When you did the new analysis, were there any other themes that you found new or different? that emerged from the interviews? I'm not going to quite answer the question, but let me say that one of the things that almost concerned me as a researcher is that the themes were so consistent. And that's why it was so important that I do this with Judy. I mean, I would say maybe somebody else would have done, but I don't think so. Because she saw the same things that I do. And she took all four editions of this casebook that I had done three times by myself and once with her, so I've forgotten what the number of cases in the world. Maybe 158, 100. It was some crazy number. A lot of cases, and the themes just stay the same. They really do. Which was very affirming to me that she agreed with all of these themes. And the thing is, the themes stay the same, but the content of the themes is different. For example, with technology. I originally included that in my thinking because of technological developments that were happening at the time that I was first thinking about this. But then by the time we did the fourth edition of this casebook, the Social Work and Health Settings book, technology was a completely different experience for everybody. Just take what it takes to do a podcast or use a smartphone, no less that you can have a heart-lung transplant now. I guess the technology was one of the angles that I was interested in because a lot of my work is around genetic diagnosis and technologies used in perinatal settings. And so, you know, those are all fairly new. Certainly the genetics part of it is, is new compared to, I guess, at that point when you were interviewing the women, oh. it was mostly prostheses for veterans and polio right. response. Right. Um, I, guess the antibiotics for syphilis. Syphilis, right. I think 
what's very powerful about your work is that, as Tobo was saying, even when Judy participated in analyzing all of the interviews, the themes were consistent. The themes seemed to really resonate across both of your analysis, but also across all of these changing circumstances and conditions, technology, for example, changing through the years. And yet some of these themes are ones that really still resonate today. They really do. And I guess I was a little surprised that that was the finding, even though that was <laughs> what we found. Yeah. But I think the other piece of that is that social work perspectives have changed, too. So I had been taught here at Bryn Mawr in my doctoral program to have a very critical perspective on things, which was not really part of social work at the point where Toba was doing these interviews. And so I really came at it sort of thinking, you know, all this response stuff, you know, where are we? And yet there we were, we being the profession, there we were using our professional judgments and pushing back at the docs and not just kind of taking it, which I think was sort of the when I went into those original interviews, I was sort of expecting, I guess, a little bit more milk toasty type of women, and I was delighted not to find that at all. That's really exciting. I love that story, Judy, for a couple of reasons, because I think in my work with students, sometimes I think they are looking for these predetermined kinds of answers, and they assume that they're sort of recipes for doing the work. But I think what is really inspiring about this is it shows students that there's really still room to think outside of the box and be creative, that as we move into new territory and we move to undertake new issues, there's no predetermined way to respond. You really, it's it's sort of a way of being about your work that you can see in these very early women, these very early social workers. It's very true. Were there any other surprises in your analysis? My biggest surprise was what I said, was that it held up so incredibly well. And there were these little gems that were not such surprises in terms of analysis. I mean, I think that was the big surprise, that it held up so well. One of the things, a lot of what I do more generally is around grief work. And so a number of the interviewees had worked at Massachusetts General Hospital during the Coconut Grove fires in 1943. So I'd read a lot of Eric Lindemann's early work on grief work, where he claims that people get over grief in six to 11 interviews with a psychiatrist. (laughs) But what I found in the interviews that Tova had done was that these social workers were very much a part of that, and they actually were seeing the people for a lot longer than than the psychiatrists residents have. Mm -hmm. And so it was really fascinating from that point of view to see these backstage stories that haven't been told. And so for our listeners, talk a little bit about, if you would, how this work has relevance for today. I have so many responses that I'm not sure where to start. One is that I think that what unites all social workers and moves us forward is our value base. Mm-hmm. which we talk about also. But it's the kind of thing that sounds so cliched when you say it, but it's actually true. And it's look at how these women responded to problems, how all the women and some men in these case books responded to problems and how what the way that we tried to teach was in the classroom and in the field, this idea about living this value base 
really does keep people united with those foremothers mm -hmm. from a long time ago. Yeah, and I think it's just emphasizing what Toba just said, but that sense of that professional use of self yes. informed by social work values, making sure that the people who are marginalized are the people we are watching out for most, not in a paternalistic way, but in a way to find out what the needs are and try and view them through that person's perspective so that we try and help them find solutions by mobilizing community resources and organizations and changing policy and coming up with new programs. The holistic nature of that professional use of self, I think, is, is a big part of it, too. I actually kind of got lost in my head for a minute when you said, you were talking about the students coming wanting recipes. So I want to go back to that for a second, if that's okay. So I think that recipes are impossible except for understanding you have to understand so many levels of client's experience to really get what their problems are, that you have to have these superb relational abilities in order to build enough trust between the two of you or whatever that entity is, you and a family or you and a group or you and a community project, that everybody can really move forward with trust. And that truly, this is another thing that I've been thinking about for a long time, and it's partly something that I learned from these interviews as well. Once there's a recipe, once we really have a solution for a problem, it no longer belongs to social work. <laughs> You know, Harriet Bartlett said to me that one of the worst things that happened to social workers, she was not a, a woman with a great sense of humor, but this was her kind of go at it, was solving the problem of polio. Because the March of Dimes sent a large number of students to social work school to get degrees in medical social work. And once polio was solved, it was no longer a problem that social workers needed to address. And so we had to move on to other fields. So that might be far afield from the idea about recipe, but that's why recipes don't work. And I have one more thought about that, which is, I think, Judy's thought, too, and that is that all the psychodynamic material learning is extremely important for social workers because of this need to be relational experts, but it ain't the end-all and the be-all. <laughs> and just because it teaches you how to come up with some psychiatric diagnosis, that is not the answer because we have to teach people, the people have, social workers have to know how to intervene. Mm -hmm. Right, and not just with the individual. I am 100% and more <laughs> behind that. And I think the fact, I always tell my students that one of the fabulous things about social workers is and I'm sure this doesn't go over well, but it is what I say in the classroom. One of the fabulous things about being a social worker is that we're not psychologists. <laughs> and we really care about social justice and that we really care about the policy implications, both how they affect the individual and how we can try and change some of those policies. We really care about how programs are affecting people in their own social context and how we can intervene backward into the social context, too, not just on people. And so I can't agree more with what Toby <laughs> just said. <laughs> so true, so true. 
And there's still, of course, a lot of work that still needs to be done in our communities and a lot of inequities still. And I think what is terrific about the work that you've done is you've helped to operationalize for students how the value base of the profession and how use of self, something I think that can elude students, how those can be employed to really affect change. One of the things, you know, we keep having all of these new discoveries in science, right? So social workers from back when with Harriet Bartlett was doing all the polio work, right? Mm -hmm. And so she has a, a whole piece on sort of going in and working with the mothers and then realizing that really these mothers have these kids who were told to stay in bed for six months and that they had to figure out how to help the mothers keep the kids in bed and entertained. And but now we have... Oh, Josephine Barber, too. Okay. Many of them worked with polio, grand polio. They too, also, when she went into the communities, which she sent by the federal government. And right. In social work, those early foremothers were looking from that direction, and now we're having all of these new scientific discoveries about neurobiology and attachment, and so we are still there as a profession, hopefully, advocating for mothers and their children to be able to have a mother-child relationship that is healthy and helps build their brains. And so now we have even more evidence for why we do what we've been doing for forever. <laughs> but we can say, oh, now we can look at the science of it. Also, you know, the attachment and the neurobiology of developing the brain that doesn't happen if mothers aren't or primary caregivers aren't available to their children. And so I think that there's this lovely way that it all ends up weaving together again that the places where individual well-being and family well-being and really societal well-being we can look at in the same way that Theodore, I don't say her name, Sue and Harriet Bartlett and Mary Poole and Maisie Rappaport and Mary Taylor and yeah, all that these women have looked at. Sure. How do you think that changes that we're seeing today, the growing disparities between rich and poor, might play out over the years and globalization and those trends? I think that they would be incredibly horrified at the, at the disparities, especially even looking at social work salaries, for example, if you don't mind my being a little looking at the social worker rather than the client. So the globalization questions are tremendously interesting for us, and we're right there in those interviews, too. The difference, I think, is that these women who were middle class, not upper class, but middle class women who were educated, really lived very segregated lives until they became social workers. And so it was very exciting for them to work with all these different ethnic groups, which at the time was probably like German, Italian, Irish, Irish, right? Not the Irish, yeah. And Jewish. That was the big range. And now, in this truly global world, you go to any elementary school in any size city, and you, you have kids who, who are living in homes where they could speak 40 or 50 languages from all over several continents. So globalization has come to us in terms of working with these immigrant populations, many of whom suffered terrible problems. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure about Western New York, but many immigrants who are rescued from countries are settled in Philadelphia. And so our students now are getting tremendous experience 
working with these populations who, who the federal government promises things and who've all watched much television, so they all expect to come step in and have jobs and middle-class lives, and I hope they keep those aspirations and social workers help them to reach them. I agree. We have a similar situation here in Buffalo with a very large, growing population of immigrants and refugees. There's a story, there are many stories in your article, and I hope that our readers will take time to read it. They're just incredibly rich descriptions, but there's one in particular that comes to mind when we talk about globalization, and that's the story about the social worker who initially begins by othering. Do you know the one I'm talking about where she goes to the home of an Irish family? Can you tell us that story? Sure, and this is Judy with the last name of McCoy. So it rang, <laughs> it rang some bells for me, though I got that name by marriage. So, But, yes, yeah, she talks in her dialogue with Toba about how they really they had a lot of disrespect for the Irish families because they had food and clothing on the floors and a lot of children and that she was sort of amazed when she got into the homes and found out how much love was going on in those homes between the moms and their kids, particularly children. And so it does start out very much as that sort of, Toba alluded to this earlier, that there's sort of a sense that these middle-class women who had not been exposed to much different, all of a sudden were hitting these different kinds of environments. And while they may have come in othering, but with really, again, one of these neat themes was that they were open to seeing what was there, to finding the strength. It's the strength-based perspective back before that name was coined. They were recognizing the strengths of the families that they worked with and surprised by them. And so hopefully our social work students now don't have to be surprised by the fact that there are strengths even in the most marginalized and challenged kinds of populations. That kind of wide-eyedness of some of the women was sort of an interesting thing to have them talk about in their interviews. And I'm sure that our students struggle with some of these same concerns. And I think it can be disturbing when we're learning as social workers when we find ourselves potentially othering people. And I think one of the lessons here, too, is that some of these things have been experienced through the years. But what makes social work unique is that we take the time to be aware and alter our thinking. And our use of self can make a big difference in the way that we engage with people. So it's okay to make mistakes is probably another way of saying it. As long as we acknowledge and actually apologize if we make mistakes. (laughs) Exactly. There's a lot of hope and optimism, I think, here for students or people who are new to the profession. And a lot of inspiration also for people who have been in the field for a long time about what really makes social work unique and what we can be proud of and the things that we do every single day in our jobs that we might take for granted over time is how differently we respond to people and how brave and courageous many social workers really are. I'll say. That was Toba, I'll say. Right, and Toba had sounded like she was going to share from an interview. You started to... Oh, I was going to tell you both about an interview that you haven't... Even Judy hasn't read, because this woman, who eventually became a public health school professor at Harvard, who was a social worker, 
read over her interview and decided that it was so casual that I shouldn't include it and that there was no way for me to persuade her. But one of the things that she said to me that she was horrified at when she read her interview was that she was living in a settlement house. This was extremely exciting for her. I'm not sure whether her father was a minister, but if not, she had that kind of upbringing. And she said that she and her friend, who were both working as social workers in the settlement house in Boston, would hang out the window at night and watch what was going on in the street with all these Italian people <laughs> who were talking very loudly and visiting with each other. And there's some of that that I think that it's important that we almost not lose. I mean, it's kind of the opposite view of this and othering, which is one of the things that's fascinating about social work is that you get to meet people with from backgrounds, not just with problems that you haven't had, but from backgrounds that, that you haven't experienced. And part of it has to be the excitement of getting to know all these different kinds of people. And that's not a negative thing as long as you use it to further understand people and get to the kind of example that Judy gave about and the example of working with the Irish families. Sure. I'm so glad that you gave that example, Toba. It makes me think about in social work the importance of curiosity and, you know, sort of a humbleness or humility about our own expertise or knowledge. When you brought up the hope and optimism, Laura, I thought about my lecture for the clinical social work classes in the fall always consists of some little version of that I hoped that they all felt hope and curiosity because those, I believe, are the core of being a good social worker, that you have to share that hope and vision when people are feeling pretty low, but even more, you have to be curious, not think you have the answers, but be curious about helping people find their answers and curious about what their experiences have been and curious not to be a nosy body, <laughs> but to be curious about what their lives have been because if you're not curious, then you assume you have the answers. And if we have the answers already, we're going to be <laughs> pedantic <laughs> problems. <laughs> and then when we're working with clients, we really need to have that level of curiosity. That's terrific. And, you know, your article and the work that you and Toba are doing together, I think, really highlights that point for students. I read the article, and in talking to you today, it leaves me with a feeling of hope and optimism for the future and reminds me that I'm part of this larger legacy. And... uh I wish I could have been in the room when you were conducting those interviews originally, Toba, but I could talk to you guys all day <laughs> about some of these stories. They're really wonderful. Really interesting. I hadn't heard the one that Toba just shared. And so <laughs> I knew that there was one respondent who was not allowing her materials to go forward. And yeah. It was fun to hear. Yeah, I was very disappointed that she wouldn't do that. But Toba and Judy, I think I've gone through most of the questions, but are there any other questions you would like me to ask or a couple of directions you'd like me to go in, things that maybe have been left unsaid? Say something about the question about reanalyzing the data. And I would say that once you collect a body of data and keep collecting more and more data, you can go back and use 
these data in so many different ways than you anticipated. I know I had said earlier that I would have never thought that I would have used these interviews. I was very determined. I did use them in my first book, which is called Medical Social Work, The Pre-Professional Paradox, which I believe only Judy has said. <laughs> it's myself and Judy. But I just never thought that they would come in handy. But they, people ask you to speak, and so you have something to call on. I went back to those interviews after many years because I was asked to give a talk at the 50th anniversary of the social work department in what had been the Baltimore City Hospital. And I also had tapes of these interviews so I could play something of Maisie Rappaport in this talk. And then, lo and behold, the person who was very involved with the American, the National... You're, you're talking about one I asked you? Yeah, the National Association of Perinatal Social Workers. Ask me if I would please come and give the keynote talk to the meeting. And it just happened to be Judy who asked me. And so, and she wanted me to do a sort of social work then, now, and what is going to be great about us in, and for us in the future. And so I went back again and looked at all this material and gave that talk so Judy heard it, because mm -hmm. she was the one who invited me to give it. And then it just worked in with our work with these health settings books. So it's a funny kind of a lesson. And, you know, it's like when you're a grandmother's age, which I am, then nobody really wants to hear what you wish that you would know 40 or 50 years ago, but you're passing on now. But that's my message about this. Well, it's a terrific message, and I feel privileged to have the opportunity to hear you speak about it and to hear Judy speak about it. And I agree. I think there's a lot of hope and optimism that comes from your work. And again, I feel privileged to have had the opportunity to talk to you both. We've enjoyed it as well. Great experience for us. You've been listening to Toba Kirsten and Judith McCoy discuss their analysis of social work's role and response to needs over time on In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, professor and dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu.